Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions, with your host, Rev. Paul John Roach. So, hello and welcome to today's show on World Spirituality on the Unity Online Radio Network. Yes, I'm your host, Paul John Roach, coming to you from Fort Worth in Texas. And today I welcome Evan Alexander and his partner, Karen Newell. To the show. Evan is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife, and it explores his near-death experience and subsequent awakening to the spiritual dimensions of life, which has informed much of his life since then. He followed that book up with another one called The Map of Heaven, looking at ways that science and mystical understanding, as well as ordinary people, are making connections to the universal truth of the universe. And I found that a very fascinating book. I'm writing a book myself on world religions, so there was a lot of uh, good stuff in that book that uh, I might use some of the quotes, actually. It was very, very helpful in that way. Um, his latest book, uh, co-authored with Karen, is called um, Living in a Mindful universe and it explores further into the heart of consciousness in fact it covers a whole lot of ground such as the pre-existent nature of consciousness prayer and meditation inner truth uh, the importance of the the felt response and we'll talk more about that in a minute karma rebirth freedom of choice and the power of creative thinking and very much it's in line with our unity way of thinking uh, in terms of that creative power of thinking and amongst many other fascinating and interconnected topics. Uh, Evan was a neurosurgeon for over 25 years, including several years at Harvard Medical School. And Karen is the co-founder of Sacred Acoustics and is fascinated with expanded awareness and connection to higher levels of consciousness in order to help others uh, reach a a more meaningful and happy life. It's not all about ourselves. It's about the generous approach. And I, I think this uh, is a seam, uh, a thread that goes through all these books is um, I've discovered something. How can I help others uh, live richer lives? And uh, so it's a joy to, to welcome Evan and Karen to today's show. Glad you're with us. Well, Paul, thanks so much for having us on. It's great to be here. Yes, thank you. So I'm fascinated with the idea of direct experience and the felt response, you know, um, in, in new thought, which was what unity is. Um, sometimes we can get a little bit cerebral because of the very words thought, new thought, uh, 
mind science and all that sort of stuff. And we're learning, I think, as unity unfolds, that it's not just about thinking, it's about feeling as well, right? Uh, in my own experience, it seems that anything that I've really taken to heart and, and has really worked in, in terms of a transformation in me it is, is a felt response, not just a head response. And I know as a neurosurgeon, um, you know, you've done a lot of work in your head, you know, uh, it, it takes a lot of skill and, and uh, mental acuity to, to, to be a neurosurgeon. Um, but I know you've moved over the years, you know, not just from not just in your head, but down into your heart. So so talk about that a little bit. Well, that actually is is probably one of the most important things to stress, because, uh, you know, I've spent the last 12 years since my coma in kind of deep uh, cerebral discussions with fellow scientists about uh, about some of these deeper truths. But you raise a very good point. It's much more about the felt presence and the felt responses, the emotional kind of engagement, I think, is so critical. Uh, and of course, before my coma, when I was kind of a practicing physicalist, uh, uh, materialist, uh, neurosurgeon, neuroscientist, I thought of emotions as just, you know, uh, hormone molecules and uh, neurotransmitters interacting with receptors on cells engaged with the nervous system. And I kind of dismissed it as that. But my journey showed me very clearly how crucial uh, kind of emotional, the felt kind of heart presence and heart awareness of this engagement, of this journey, of our sense of purpose and meaning, of our relationships with others. Every bit of it depends heavily on that kind of felt uh, emotional state. Uh, and, and also you mentioned, you know, being a neurosurgeon, how you're, you're very much in your head. It's a very cerebral activity. Well, that brings up the point that, you know, we have a linguistic brain. Uh, and to think that uh, uh, all of reality can be uh, nicely condensed into linguistic presentation and narrative is just not true. Uh, that's one of the biggest problems. And that's why people often describe near-death experiences as ineffable, uh, as something that is beyond our earthly language, because our language wasn't really evolved to discuss some of these deeper a profound kind of lessons of feeling and uh, of connection and uh, emotional uh, engagement with others. Uh, and yet that is absolutely a crucial part of the territory. And that's why Karen and I realized long ago, this is not about conveying these things through kind of book concepts and, you know, read this and understand it and you'll get it. But uh, Karen, especially, I would say, introduced me to the concept of personal experience and going within. The answers truly lie within us all, and those answers, in many ways, go far beyond anything we could ever put into words effectively. Uh, so it's very important, this point you're making about the felt presence uh, and about kind of the emotional engagement with the universe and with these journeys uh, to make better sense of them. And don't expect that you'll be able to convert every bit of the experience into a linguistic form that you can convey to other human beings. That's why it's so crucial for all of us to go within and all of us to explore uh, these deep avenues of knowing. Yeah, excellent. And, and there's the rub, isn't it? Because it can't be explained to another, you know, then it, it's, it's hard to prove it, so to speak. You know, there has to be a, a direct experience on the part of the, the skeptic before they can uh, make a, a journey into that understanding that, you, that you're talking about. 
And I, I, I wish I could remember now. I've read all the books recently, but I can't remember which book this was in. But you, you were uh, talking, I think, with, with a, uh, a rationalist. And uh, later on, the, on, on the, the, their show, I think they had a blog or whatever, um, or podcast. And on their show, they'd, they'd, had, they'd recently had some kind of experience um, with a child, I think it was. Do you, do you recall this? Yes, and, I uh, yeah, to explain that because even though they was uh, the person was a skeptic, um, you know they they honoured uh, your thinking in a way because the, uh, he incorporated an experience that he had, which was beyond the rationality, wasn't it? Yeah, I think the the one you're talking about is with Michael Shermer, and that would be a story we told in Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, and and Michael has uh, written several books on his own. He's uh, uh, known as a kind of an atheist uh, 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 and a, a, quote, skeptic. Uh, and, and that's where it got interesting. He also writes a blog for Scientific American, or at least he did. I think he stopped doing that. Uh, but that's where his, the story got very interesting. And it had to do with his, uh, uh, his marriage. And he married a young uh, woman who uh, was, uh, had a German heritage and her, one of her main uh, caregivers growing up had been her grandfather. But he had passed over several years before this marriage was to happen. And she was lamenting the fact, uh, they lived out in California at the time when they were getting married, she was lamenting the fact that her grandfather was, was not here for it all. And it turns out she had some old uh, stuff of his, including an old broken radio, a Phillips radio. Oh, and, that's right, yes, and wonderful fact, story. Uh, uh, so the the you know the afternoon of their uh, uh, I think it was before their rehearsal dinner or something like that the day before they were wed, the uh, music started coming out of their uh, bedroom and it was coming from a drawer and in the drawer was this broken radio that had never worked, and the quality of the music was such that uh, this young woman was thinking oh this is beautiful it's like my grandfather is here I can you know his presence is is here with us and yet. Uh, uh, the, then the next day, the music stopped, and they could no longer get the radio to work, and that was the end of that. But he wrote the blog in, in Scientific American where he put out there, when you don't have the answers, you need to keep an open mind. And the way he left his piece in Scientific American was he was open-minded to the fact that that might have been a spiritual connection from her grandfather actually wishing her well through this music, through that broken radio. Well, uh, it turns out that... You know, I had seen that and I had, uh, I had already met him before at one interview where he took the kind of materialist position to try and debunk my story. And now we were together for another interview. This is after that blog posting. And that's where I congratulated him. I said, that was very courageous of you to do that. Uh, and, and it turns out that his wife, Jennifer, was also there when I made that statement. And that's when they told me, oh, no, no, we figured it all out. Something, we have a rational explanation <laughs> From the radio, I said, "Oh, really? Well, do tell. Tell me more." Uh, and they said, "Well, we're not exactly sure what it is, but we have a rational explanation." And it's like he had taken such a beating from his readers, you know, <laughs> chastising him for this lapse in uh, his rigidity as a quote skeptic uh, that they were really beating up on him. And uh, he never had any better explanation at all. From my point of view, that's still the best explanation was that her father's soul was participating in this uh, beautiful event of her marriage. Uh, but it's, it's amazing. It, it brings up that whole issue of how uh, hardcore 
you know, the kind of pseudo-skeptical audience, and I call them pseudo-skeptic, because someone like that is not truly a skeptic at all. A skeptic is one who has a, a truly open mind. And I often say in the, in the mind-brain discussion, in trying to get at the heart of materialism or idealism or the dualisms or what have you, in a deep scientific philosophical discussion about brain and mind, one of the best attributes is a true, rabid, open-minded skepticism. You need that to go into this territory because so many of our assumptions in our society are so ingrained, uh, and yet the answers seem to completely defy them. And yet uh, many out there who claim to be skeptics like Shermer are really just pseudo-skeptics. In fact, they're immune to things like empirical data and rational argument. Uh, their prejudice is so strong that you'll never convince them that's like that uh, uh, Randy, the, the famous kind of skeptical debunker who passed over a month or so ago um, and, you know, had the million-dollar prize. Well, apparently he was such an arch-skeptic, uh, he never paid, or, or pseudo-skeptic, he, he never paid any attention to any of this, never believed any of it could be real. The million-dollar prize was a complete joke, uh, and, and it's really a tragedy because some people take that kind of thing seriously and don't realize that there are scientists that are seriously engaged in this work uh, that really support uh, very strongly a lot of the vision that we put forward in Living in a Mindful Universe about the primacy of consciousness. So it's a, a fundamental world shift that we're talking about and one that I think is very important to this world. Well, I'm glad you brought that up about skepticism. Of course, if, if our listeners are familiar with the four agreements, you know, that Don Miguel Ruiz uh, oh, yes. became Love famous that. for he later on added a fifth agreement and uh, that fifth agreement was to be a little bit skeptical you know not not to just be a, anybody's fool here and fall for stuff um it's good to 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 question right we, we never have all the answers uh, and so it, it's good to have as, as the buddhists call it don't know mind you know and yes. I, I love the three pillars of zen the three pillars of zen the great faith great doubt and great persistence. You know, when I was a kid growing up in the Church of England, um, you know, doubting was not allowed. You know, you had to have blind faith, trust in God. You know, the idea that you doubted was almost the work of the devil. But really, I think doubt is is part of the process of learning, right? You you have doubt, you have Absolutely. faith, and you keep persevering until, until you have a, a greater understanding. So all all these things are healthy, I think, in in their right relation. Let's put it like that. You know, if it's if it's true skepticism and not what you're talking about, pseudo skepticism, which is a, a sort of a closed mind. You know, my mind is made up. Don't don't right. confuse me with the uh, with with the facts here. You know, that that's not really helpful, is it? No, it's it's not. And I love when I see, uh, for example, Christoph Koch, who is the head of the Paul Allen Neuroscience Research Center uh, out in Seattle. Uh, you know, he's been a, a long-term kind of materialist neuroscientist, but I love it that a few years ago he came out with a book that confessed, it was, it was called The Confessions of a, uh, I can't remember exactly the title, but of a reductivist neuroscientist. And he made it clear that uh, uh, from everything he knew, it looked like consciousness was not just being produced by the brain, but there's more to the picture we need to entertain. And I think that's the kind of healthy, open-minded skepticism I'm talking about. Uh, because uh, some of those, especially in materialist neuroscience, who are absolutely adamant that it's you know their view or the highway, uh, they they put themselves in such a ridiculous position 
because of all the evidence for non-local consciousness and a tremendous amount of human experience, like near-death experiences, uh, deathbed visions, uh, past life memories in children, suggestive reincarnation, things like that, uh, that really uh, point to a far more interesting and open universe than one that our simplistic materialist science can readily explain away. Uh, And in fact, what they what materialist neuroscience will try and do at the get-go in this discussion today is convince you that you don't even have free will. Because from their point of view, consciousness is an epiphenomenon, it's an illusion of the chemical reactions and electron fluxes of the brain. And those are all just uh, subatomic particles, atoms, molecules, following the laws of physics, chemistry, biology. Uh, and, and there's no room for any free will. Uh, in, in that kind of model, and yet they have nothing to say about consciousness. They try and ex- uh, argue that it doesn't exist, uh, whereas I would say that the only thing any human being has ever known is the inside of their own consciousness, and we need to take with a great big grain of salt anything we're assuming about that underlying reality out there. Uh, that's I, can't rem- I can't remember who said it, but uh, some wit, he said there is only free will, we don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah, that was a, a, a philosopher. I think his name was Singer or Sanger. Yeah. yeah. I, in fact, one. we have that quote in, uh, in in Proof of Heaven. That's one of the chapters. Uh, that's where I read it then. Uh, that took exactly. my fancy because there's this something, uh, that, you know, so much of truth is, is uh, a conundrum, a paradox, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we have to uh, embrace the paradox if we're to understand these things. Coming back to the radio a minute, though. Um, you know, whether there was a rational explanation or not, it doesn't really matter because it happened, right? It yeah. happened at the right perfect time and the right and perfect way to convey something to that person. And uh, the universe is like that, I think. It doesn't really matter if uh, which way it comes to you. Um, you know, you could explain it and say, oh, that was only this. But yeah, even if you'd said that, you'd say, well, yeah, but that was interesting. It's that, that perfect time. And, and um, you know, I think that's the way it can come. It, it doesn't have to come in a, a woo-woo mystical place. You know, it doesn't have to come through uh, a near-death experience because not all of us have experienced that. But, yeah. but it can come in any way possible, you know, that we are open and receptive to, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and that's that's the beauty of this stuff, I think. Well, I, I think that's a beautiful point. Uh, and one example would be synchronicities. You know, Carl Jung often mm-hmm. referred to synchronicities, uh, what some of us might call coincidences. Uh, and yet, uh, when you're when you open your mind to the to the synchronicities or coincidences that appear in your life, I think you can often discern, uh, you know, a certain amount of information and messaging that's coming from the universe, uh, and you're supposed to pay attention to it. So, from my point of view, uh, synchronicities are a beautiful category of human experience uh, where we can all learn a lot more about our kind of personal journey uh, and and what the universe is trying to gift us with uh, in this unfolding of understanding. Uh, just by being more alert to uh, things like synchronicities in our lives. Right. Yeah, I think an open and receptive, you know, attitude is uh, is key here, isn't it? Because uh, by by so doing, you know, we, we are automatically turning on, if you like, activating something that wouldn't be available otherwise, right? And, and um, 
and and so it's really not dependent on what we believe. It's it's dependent on what we're willing to put into practice, and that brings us back to this direct experience. So Charles Fillmore, co-founder of Unity, uh, wanted to um, prove the the truths uh, by practical example, by direct experience. And uh, hence, unity is very underpinned, you know, in, uh, is connected to this idea of a way of life, a practical spirituality, right? Um, and it, it's, it's not a question of going out on blind faith. It's a question of let's go ahead and put these uh, thoughts and ideas, these truths into practice, you know, because really that's, that's the, the proof of the pudding, isn't it? Um, it is, does it work, right? Absolutely. I think that that's a good point. And that's why we encourage people uh, when Karen and I give our uh, meditation play shops, we often remind them that the dominant kind of tone of beliefs in our society are falsely restricting, falsely limiting into what is possible. Uh, and when you start realizing, for example, you know, the world of medicine is very scientific and the way it's taught is very uh, kind of conventional in its scientific approach of physics, chemistry, biology. Uh, and yet the gold standard in medicine for the last 60 years or so has been a placebo control arm. Uh, placebo is nothing more than the admission by medical scientists that someone's beliefs, their attitudes, their thoughts can have a tremendous role in their health and in any healing that happens to them. Uh, and ask Big Pharma if it's real or not. Big Pharma cannot stand placebo effect. Because right out of the gate, uh, just that knowledge of how our beliefs can lead us into an emergent reality, um, you need about a 30% benefit out of the gate for any of these modern medicines to beat placebo in a trial. Uh, so it, we're just admitting in many ways through uh, use of placebo effect, the power of mind over matter and the power of our beliefs. And the more people realize what is possible, uh, like with near-death experiences and the kind of healing they can bring, then you start to really see uh, that our beliefs can create uh, the highest, uh, kind of loftiest world of our dreams. When you were in your uh, near-death experience, um, and this you talked about this earlier, beyond linguistics, beyond language and uh, words, and yet these, these entities, the, these images that came to you, uh, spoke to you, right? But not not with language. They spoke at a, another at a meta level. Um, yes. So I'm interested in that. Uh, now, how how did that feel? Well, it's it's uh, basically it's uh, feels much more real than this world. You often hear people like more than 50% of NDEers were described the ineffability or the ultra reality. How those worlds seem much more real and complete and meaningful and. Uh, filled with detail and uh, uh, than, than this world. This world, the material world we live in, is uh, more kind of dreamlike in its, its qualities than, than that world. And I think that's an important thing to understand there is much of our knowing in those realms is what I call knowledge through identification. So that, for example, when people are describing a life review, uh, which is uh, present in uh, anywhere from 25 to 50 percent of near-death experiences, depending on the series you look at. But they often describe the life review as uh, something you experience from the viewpoint of those around you in the events uh, that it's reviewing. Uh, so in other words, if uh, uh, someone is uh, departing this physical world and going through that life review, 
what they feel is the emotional power of their actions in certain encounters with others um, in those events of the life, but they don't experience it from their own perspective. So this kind of knowledge through identification is becoming much more than just one self. You know, we become others to feel their experiences as part of our learning as a higher soul. So uh, it's, it's really um, kind of a different mode of knowing. You no longer have, uh, for example, in this world, in this body, uh, my eyes, my ears, they act as filters. They kind of reduce and limit uh, and, and focus my attention of certain perceptual realities. And my brain, uh, likewise, is involved in certain amounts of filtering there. Uh, to limit uh, conscious perception down to this uh, relatively minor trickle when you compare it to the information flow of experiences in those realms. Uh, and again, part of it is that the brain, a big part of its role is to be a filter, a reducing valve, as uh, it's been put in, in people discussing filter theory. Uh, but limiting our exposure to consciousness, whereas when you leave the physical body, you lose that filtering mechanism, and therefore it's, it's more like drinking from a fire hose from this consciousness uh, that you experience, uh, say, in a life review and in a near-death experience uh, and that kind of thing. In fact, at the deepest, richest aspect of my journey in the core realm, uh, which is the furthest removed from this earthly material realm, all of the higher dimensional multiverse had been shrunken down into this complex oversphere for part of the lessons. And I sensed that I existed there in this infinite expanse uh, that uh, completely contained all of time and space and dimensionality within it. So uh, those worlds of the mind can be far vaster uh, than what, the, what we experience as mind when we're kind of trapped in these bodies and brains down here in the material realm. And that's a big part of the kind of difference in knowing. But that is something that I believe we can all uh, come to address more fully through meditation and centering prayer, because I believe that those techniques of going within, uh, and that is something that where Karen Newell has taught me a lot uh, in, in my life, and her work with sacred acoustics and my work with meditation right. uh, has been an absolutely uh, crucial part of, of all of that. Uh, we'll talk about that in the second segment. And yes, I think our obsession with ourselves, you know, with our egos, with the the identification with this limited being is gets in the way, doesn't it, of, of that larger sense of who we are. Oh, I think I, it was I, William Blake said, if the doors of perception, if the doors of perception were cleansed, we would see the world as it is infinite, right? And that's exactly. what we're talking about here. Yeah. Yes, and that is absolutely true. Our consciousness uh, absolutely enables full possession of it, that infinity. All right, we're at the break. I'm with Evan and, and uh, Karen. We're going to join them again after these messages from Unity. And we'll hear from Karen about some of her work in this field. Join us then. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. 
All right, welcome back to today's show. I'm with Evan Alexander and Karen Neal talking about their series of books uh, from the, the New York Times bestseller, Proof of Heaven, through the Map of Heaven, uh, to the latest one, Living in a Mindful Universe. And um, we talked before the break about uh, how uh, the, our perceptions, especially if we're attached to our own human sense of, of being, uh, can, can limit us. And, uh, but there are ways to move beyond that obsessive uh, fascination with, with the outer, if you like, with the physical or, or with the ego, whatever. Um, and uh, one of the most important aspects for me, and you, you mentioned it, of course, in the book, is this uh, observer self, right? This this uh, objective ability to just see things as they really are rather than filtered through what we would like them to be. And, and we find that they're actually much more magnificent than we could have dared uh, believe, you know? And a lot of people hate the line, uh, thy, thy will, not my will, because we, we, we worry that God's will is not going to be good enough for us, <laughs> which is kind of insanity. Uh, but, uh, you know, we always want to do our will. Well, yeah. that, that doesn't really help us, does it? Because um, it, it limits us to, to what we think is good for us, right? Um, when we have some catastrophes happen, sometimes it breaks us open. But we don't have to wait for catastrophe, hopefully, right? We can, we can move into these realms. And I, and I know that's what you're focusing on now a lot is... Um, teaching people how to to enter the, this consciousness. So let's talk about that. And I know Karen's part of that, too. So we haven't heard a lot from you, Karen, yet. You want to talk about your your fascination, your particular area of, of, um, of work that you're involved with? Well, I'll go back just a little bit to where you were speaking of how the feeling sense is so important. And I'll go all the way back to my childhood when I would go to church camp, Methodist church camp, and they would tell us to go out in the woods and commune with God. And I, you know, I had this idea of what God was, some powerful being, maybe coming down on a cloud, and nothing of that was happening. And so I just communed with nature. This was the beautiful Oregon coast. And I came to believe that Mother Nature, <clears throat> Mother Nature was the force behind everything, not some God. And so it was very interesting It's because I felt that feeling. I did never believed what I was told unless I could feel that feeling. And so when I would read about in spiritual texts, all of these amazing experiences that people would have where they would connect with this greater force, I was very fascinated on how I could do that as well, because it's really, I would say, a birthright in all of us to feel that connection to that greater power because that's where we came from. Call it whatever you want. I don't call it God just because of the, you know, wh what that meant in my childhood. I just call it a force or mother nature, but it's really all the same thing. So how do we tap into that? Some of us naturally do it, say, when we're out in nature or maybe through a runner's high or some kind of flow state or maybe in dreams. But if you want to actually cultivate it, this is something I spent a lot of time doing. And when I first started to do this, it really began with uh, kind of a, the basics of meditation. And when I would sit to be quiet with myself, with my inner world, as we say, um, you know, you mentioned that observer. Well, there's also something else in our minds, and that's that constant running, you know, barrage of thoughts and beliefs and 
you know, very often they're limiting us, telling us we're not good enough. And so when I first went into the inner world trying to meditate, that's what I ran into was all of those racing thoughts. And so it took some time to really learn how to quiet the mind. And it was a particular quality of sound. Um, you mentioned I co-founded Sacred Acoustics and we create something known as binaural beats. And this type of sound, think of it as like a tuning fork or a brass bowl, a crystal bowl, anything that makes kind of a wah, 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 kind of regular sound is a binaural beat. And when you hear that, it actually takes the brain from that wake, awake walking around state known as theta into lower states of awareness, say alpha or theta that are associated with um, focused relaxation or meditation or that hypnagogic state. That's the key to it all. The hypnagogic state is that state between awake and asleep. And many scientists such as Einstein used to get into this state intentionally to really connect to all of these beautiful ideas that he came up with that helped us advance. Thomas Edison had a similar type of way of doing it. But if we can learn how to get into this hypnagogic state, that's when the little voice in our head kind of push, gets pushed to the side and we become more aware of that observer within. And the way you tell the difference between the observer and that voice, the observer is neutral. The observer is not telling you you're doing anything wrong or reminding you about some conversation with a boss. It is that neutral part inside. And when you can get to that, that's where you really start to, um, as you say, kind of get beyond all of that chatter and find that inner world that is God, I guess. Yeah, I love what you're saying about nature because that's that was my way in, you know, as a child. And I, I, I consider myself to be a nature mystic to, the, to this day um, because, you know, there's so much you could learn from Mother Nature and all its its uh, its cycles and, and its beauty and uh, it's it's deep. Uh, it, it's silent, but it's speaking. It's a bit like that matter language we talked about earlier. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's a wonderful way. And I also remember uh, when I was uh, a young uh, dad and my, my little daughter would be working uh, very focused on, an, on a drawing or some homework right next to me. And I would go into Alpha, I think, just picking up on her focused uh, energy. Right. Um, and, and I always loved that because it was like settled me down. It was amazing. I never thought that could happen, but I was resonating with with her focus and um you know so to me it, it's it speaks to the fact that th this this stuff is available um everywhere right it, like you say the sweet spot you know when, when we're doing something that is ours to do we can descend into this beautiful place too right uh, it's always available to us i think we teach ourselves that it's not you know whether which is unfortunate we we uh, we think the only reality is the is the busy world and just not true well, I, I must say that's one thing that, uh, from my point of view, working with Karen and with these uh, meditation play shops has been very instructive, is that <clears throat> I, I, I know how uh, Michael Singer in his book, The Untethered Soul, he calls that running stream of thoughts in your head, your annoying roommate. And I yeah. think that is a great way to look at that little running stream of thoughts. That's the voice of the ego. Um, and it's it, it isn't necessarily going to lead us to deeper truth. So... One of the things that Karen and I often teach people in these workshops is that distinction between that neutral observer, uh, that conscious awareness, 
um, and that little voice in the head. And then I think people can start to really separate themselves from that voice of the ego, which basically has fear and anxiety as its main tools, and start to open ourselves to a much greater wisdom of the universe. And I'll say the other key ingredient I got from my experience, uh, because you mentioned it a little while ago about thy will not mine be done, uh, is this incredible sense of being able to trust in the universe. Trust and gratitude, I think, are two of the most important kind of ingredients for a human in, in wanting to deal with kind of primordial mind and this deeper knowing. Uh, and the trust came from my experience, but it is something that I think when you study many of these experiences, you start to realize that uh, when we, we have this kind of deep sense of connection with the universe, uh, that in many ways it is giving us uh, you know, a very trustworthy form of information to help guide us in our journey. And I think the worst thing we can do is to try and um, stamp out this, this, uh, these voices, right? The, right. The, 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 the anxious mind, you know, because then it comes back stronger. You know, you, what, you, what you resist persists, as they say. Mm -hmm. and, and you just have to give it its space. You know, it's just a, a, a little playful animal. You just have to let it play. Um, I, I like the idea of the clouds in the sky. You know, I, I am the spacious sky, but sometimes I have clouds that go through. But I just I watch them come and I watch them go. You know, they're, they're just what the, the, my brain does. Um, and the more I can become comfortable with them, you know, the, the less obtrusive they are. Right. Yeah. I remember when I was first meditating, I had, to, I had to have total silence, you know, I get really annoyed if somebody made a sound or whatever. Uh, and then after a while, I realized there's no such thing as total silence. You know, you integrate the sounds into your meditation mm -hmm. and and it's part of the world and you don't even notice it anymore. You know, after a while, it's just um, like waves on the shore. And and, and I think so. Th th this is important. You know, it's, it's about integration here rather than saying I've got to get rid of all the bad things so I can be, you know, in a, in a beautiful state of enlightenment. Right. Yeah. Enlightenment is in the midst of everything. Absolutely. And it's it's a it's a real kind of easing up and letting go. And I, I know for me, that was a tremendous revelation to realize that I didn't have to shut off that little voice in my head. All I had to do was kind of usher it into time out uh, and, and let my uh, uh, conscious awareness expand uh, far beyond all that and realize I wasn't dependent on that little linguistic voice to guide me where I was going. Another very useful tool for me was to move my awareness from my mind, where it often would be when I was thinking and trying to, as you say, get rid of those thoughts. And instead, I would move my awareness to my heart. And when I placed awareness on the heart and learned a technique to match my breathing with the rhythm of my heartbeat, that's when I really started triggering all of those feelings I thought I had gotten rid of. They really had just been suppressed or ignored in my feeling energy. And so when you start to tap into that, you know, you think, oh, let me just go create some gratitude and love. At first, sometimes you run into these other types of emotions. And so I know in my case, when I first, you know, you get you you learn things and you you understand that, oh, this is that state and you no longer need the tools. But at first, that going into the heart was so, so useful in order to really allow those kind of stagnant emotions to release. And what I learned from the HeartMath Institute is that the heart emits an electromagnetic field and it actually 
uh, emits whatever emotions are in your system and it influences the people around you. So I, I'm struck by when you were, you know, focused on your daughter who was focusing on her drawing that potentially you had gotten inside of her heart field and that focused attention was actually influencing you through that mechanism of the electromagnetic field. And I think this happens when we're around people who are very calm and who are very balanced. We kind of get that balance from them. And when we're with people who are, you know, the opposite of that, very anxious and uppity and worried, that we feel that too. And so it's almost like, um, you know, when we say, oh, we need to help others, we always need to help others. But if we take the time to feel that balance, clear our, you know, stuff and find that connection, we are actually, at the same time we're helping ourselves, we are helping others by nature of how that influence happens just automatically, whether we realize it or not. So I really take that to heart and try to, especially when I'm around other people, try to just really uh, establish that gratitude feeling or appreciative feeling or something like that so that it's influencing people around me without even having to say a word. So even in grocery stores or places like that, it's a really kind of fun thing to do and then just watch the people around you. Do they become kinder? You know, do they become more upset if you're not balanced? So that's a very interesting mechanism for all of us to be aware of. Absolutely. Very, very nice. Thank you for sharing that. And it does fit in very well with my experience with my daughter. You know, there's a lovely word from India called Darshan, which is the same concept. And it's it means, uh, well, you know, traditionally it was you went to see the guru and, and be in, in his Darshan. He would he would look at you and you would look at him. But I think it works anywhere you are. You know, you could you can give Darshan to somebody, which is exactly what you're saying in the grocery store. You know, you're bringing that energy and um, that awareness to, to the place. And, and you can do it for yourself. You know, you can give yourself darshan and, and give uh, generosity and kindness to the poor little parts of you, you know, that are struggling, right? You, you let the largest self of you um, bless that that part of, of your humanness. And, and that's, that's a beautiful gift you can give to yourself as well. Um, I want to talk about music and sound because that is so important, right? Of getting to this meta level beyond the words, beyond language, where you're just feeling connected. And 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 music, chant, uh, the Om can do, can do it, right? I, Evan, you talked about the great Om in your in your book. Um, you know that presence that the of um, of a mysterious presence, but very powerful, right? Right. Well, that's basically how I labeled that uh, infinitely loving uh, God force that uh, was so fully presented to me in the core, but also in the Gateway Valley. Uh, that I called it Alm because that is the sound I remembered from the core realm, um, you know, which is about as far from human experience and the here now of this realm as you could possibly get. And yet uh, sound music vibration was how I found uh, my soul was able to traverse these various realms is by remembering the musical notes, the vibration. And of course, people must realize that in those realms, sound and music can be far beyond, far more kind of idealized uh, and perfect in its mode compared to the music we hear in, in, th in this world, in the four-dimensional space-time of the material realm. Uh, and yet, sound is a crucial part of this. Um, 
And that's what I came to realize in the work with sacred acoustics. And that's a very different form of sound that really is influencing the lower brainstem. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so powerful, these binaural beats of uh, sacred acoustics, which is Karen's uh, company. And that's what have, I've used daily for the last 10 years or so to return to my NDE and to uh, more fully kind of uh, examine my role as a soul here. Uh, and in the soul growth, I've been using meditation daily for that. Uh, and I use as a, a powerful tool uh, sacred acoustics and binaural beat brainwave entrainment. Well, you know, they called it the music of the spheres, right, in medieval Christianity. And and uh, we, we look at that and say, oh, that was nice, that's fanciful, whatever. But really, it's not. You know, um, the, the same techniques are used in, in Buddhism and Sufism and Hinduism, you know, to connect um, to these deeper levels and uh, seed, seed syllables and, and um, various chants. Uh, can be incredibly powerful to and and can do different things, you know, de depending on what we want, right? There's a whole science based on this, and and the West is is beginning to pick up on on some of these things, and you know what you're referencing, um, but uh, it's it's been uh, known known to humanity for for thousands of years, right? Right. I mean, that's one of the beauties of kind of where the science uh, the science of consciousness is headed is to show us that uh, in many ways the very leading edges of our understanding uh, are right there where uh, spiritual traditions both east and west uh, have found the frontiers thousands of years ago so Absolutely. it's really the coalescence of our understanding uh, that i think is very profound uh, so you you reference uh Taya de chardin the great uh, catholic paleontologist mystic um, and, you know, he was very interested in this idea of evolution, right? And we're going to eventually reach a, a omega point, you know, a sort of a, a point where we're all going to be a Christed beings or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Do you subscribe to that idea that, that that's the journey we're on? In, in yes, I, I, I know when I read uh, Phenomenon of Man, I was very taken with how uh, visionary it was. And I believe that uh, Pierre de Taylor de Chardin was right on the, the beam in terms of what was really going on with evolution. It makes much more sense to me that this is all of uh, sentience throughout the universe. And, and the, the one thing I would clarify about that is I believe that that omega point in many ways uh, is a vanishing point on the horizon. Because I think that hu humanity can only envision uh, kind of a certain... Uh, kind of depth and reach of this journey, but it's not the ultimate uh, reach. I think it's beyond what we can even imagine now. But uh, for the last 5,000 years or so, I would say humanity has been challenged with learning this beautiful lesson of oneness and connectedness through uh, primordial mind. And that's what we're finally coming into now, uh, supported by the, you know, the scientific study of consciousness, by quantum physics, and much of what it implies about the nature of reality and of wholeness. Uh, and I believe uh, you're exactly right. I think Teilhard de Chardin uh, was an amazingly capable visionary who pointed a way uh, to where uh, deep truth lies for humanity moving forward. Well, it's sometimes referred to as the peduncle, right? This idea, this vanishing point, this event horizon, you're almost moving into this black hole. Um, that we have no concept what that might be like, you know, the pleroma or whatever, the, the fullness beyond, you know, anything we could imagine right now. So we can only sort of see so far into this and 
that. And again, we have to journey into it to, to truly understand what, what's happening, right? Right, exactly. Fascinating stuff. Well, uh, we don't want to get too abstruse here. So in the last five minutes of the show, let's take it down into um, something real practical um, that we can uh, share with with our listeners here that you've learned in, in your years since your near-death experience and, and Karen, all the work that you've been doing. Um, so wh- how, what would you say are the th- three most important things right now that we can do uh, as, as people moving through life in, a, in an interesting year, 2020? Well, I'll, I would, we'll come up with three together. <clears throat> One would be to uh, really take time to generate those feelings of gratitude. Find something to feel grateful for, not just think about it, but to generate those feelings. Because in these kind of times, everything can seem to be going to pieces. And yet, maybe you have enough toilet paper to get through the week. Or, you know, the beautiful sky is, you know, right there in front of you. And you know, you can find those things. And uh, another thing I would say is to have the feeling that there is a higher purpose for all of this kind of stress. Um, the, there will be blessings in disguise that come through despite all the tragedy. We need to see the very large picture. Hardships are always opportunities for growth. And this is like a collective hardship for all of us. Yeah, I, th- I think that to me is one of the most important things is to embrace of the challenges in life, of the illness, the injury, to recognize them as uh, milestones that uh, enable kind of the growth of our souls as we grow into the grander beings that we came here to be. Uh, and embracing hardships is, uh, is a key part of this. And also this gaining of trust in the universe, and as Karen points out, that sense of gratitude. And I think that the last point I would make is that every soul is important in this. Uh, this this whole notion of, uh, of, uh, of of the evolution of consciousness itself, uh, just like that old saying, all politics is local. It's it, so that this purpose of the universe to support sentient beings in their uh, uh, lives of, of self discovery uh, is what leads to that evolution of all of consciousness. And so we're all part of that. So join this uh, this uh, tremendous journey that we share. Uh, with a, a great spirit of cooperation, collaboration, of kindness, compassion, acceptance, mercy for others, and, and really grow into the higher soul we came here to be. You know, the ego serves a, a little purpose for supporting uh, beings in a kind of a material world, and yet for this much deeper recognition of who we are, we need to expand into our higher souls. Uh, and that involves not only the meditation and the centering prayer, but it involves putting all that we discover there about our relationship with the universe into practice and come back and do the work of helping others. And uh, especially in these times of hardship, uh, you know, doing what we can to help our fellow beings. So this is all about mutual growth that comes from this kind of mutual effort of, uh, of expansion and uh, evolution. Beautifully put. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read your last paragraph of your, your latest book because it, it's beautiful in the way it sums up well, some of the things you've just been talking about. Uh, you write the most important feature of this understanding is that you, dear reader, are crucial to this process. 
the universe is evolving in vast and fascinating ways, and you are not only part of it, you are it. You are the universe. The mindful universe in which we, we live is self-aware and learning and evolving. And you're coming to know this fully and living it is the pathway toward perfect harmony with all that is. I, I, I could read more, but I think that's uh, sufficient because that's beautiful. It's an invitation. You know, so many books say, listen to me. I've got all the answers. Uh, just practice this. But this is an invitation to say you're incalculably important as, as a person, right? Because you are the universe. And I love that statement. Well, I think that, uh, well, thank you for that. I, I believe that uh, it certainly reflects a tremendous amount of deep truth that, you know, not only have we come to, uh, but in many of the books I read in the modern era about uh, advances in science and spirituality, I think that we're all kind of coming together into some of these deep and profound truths to help all of humanity. And if consciousness is fundamental, which is what Eben pretty much discovered because of his near-death experience, <clears throat> that means each of us is part of that consciousness. So it truly is a birthright and a responsibility for each of us to understand how we're contributing to that unfolding reality and make some proper decisions based on that. Absolutely. All right, let me tell you about next week's show. And then, Evan and Karen, can you come up with one word, just one word that is the lodestone word for today, okay? Next week, um, female Muslim teacher Ayman al Zahabi joins me from the Middle East. She lives in Abu Dhabi, and uh, she's going to discuss her new book. It's called The Art of Surrender, so I think that should fit in nicely with our discussion today. Uh, it's practical ways to enlightened happiness and, and well-being. So join me for that. But right now, two words. One, one from each of you. Love. And one. Thank you again for being on the show. It's been wonderful. Well, thank you, Paul. It's been great talking with you. I hope to talk again soon. Thank you. All right. You bet. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA Unity ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash divine 2022 